Good morning. Please take your Bible and turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and we'll begin this morning by reading verses 2 to 12. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 12. The Word of God reads, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under a trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The passage I just read is all about suffering. It's all about trials in the life of a professing believer. So therefore, I'm going to take this passage and explain it in two different messages. This morning, A Lesson on Suffering Part 1 is the title. We'll cover verses 2 to 4 today. And then next week in Part 2, we'll cover verses 5 to 12. As Christians, we have to start out by observing some truth here. We view suffering different from the world. The world observes suffering, and they are stumped. They don't know how to respond. Which is why they undergo unceasing psychological counseling and consume all different types of man-made chemicals to somehow temporarily soothe and numb their mind. The world views suffering in light of pure purposelessness and random chance with nothing to gain from. Therefore, there is no acceptance of suffering and certainly no joy to be found in suffering. And thirdly, the world views suffering from a victim mentality, Deceivingly thinking that suffering is brought upon by the action of someone else or the idleness of someone else, which causes many to have the false theology that God has some personal vendetta against them. Therefore, there's a scapegoat to be found. There has to be some finger pointing. And in the meantime, there's nothing but isolation to be had. In a nutshell, that's how the world views suffering. But as believers, we are to see suffering totally different. 
totally different, through different lenses. And that's what we're going to learn and be confronted with as we traverse through this rich text today and next Lord's Day. Many of you have suffered, some more than others, and I know some of you still feel ill-equipped to deal with your trials. And while some have not really suffered beyond the ordinary challenges of living in a fallen world, the day will come. You don't know you don't know the degree, you don't know when, but all of us will suffer. So either way, this short series on suffering from God's word will help you deal with suffering in a Christ-honoring way. In the text before us, we're going to allow the text to unfold as it provides answers to six commonly asked questions about suffering. One of the things I love about the plain reading of Scripture is that it answers most of life's questions, and you don't need a PhD to figure them out. These questions have been asked by most people. Uh, men do not make up anything new. As time goes on, you'll, you'll, you'll see that every question about life has already been asked. There's no question you can come up with that hasn't been answered or asked already. These questions, I'm sure you've wondered, or you will wonder. And I'm going to show you how the Word of God answers these commonly asked questions about suffering. And it will inform your thinking and help you understand the role of suffering in your life. The first question we're going to unpack this morning is, number one, how do you handle suffering? How does God want you to handle suffering? In verse 2, it answers the question for us. James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, as I noted last week in the introductory message, most New Testament writers express some sort of appreciation for the readers, or they express some form of thanksgiving or blessing to God. But James does no such thing, does he? He identifies himself as the author, he identifies his recipients, and then he gets right to a command. He launches directly into an exhortation. He says, consider. The word consider means to count or to reckon. It's the same language that Paul uses in Philippians 3, verse 7, a verse that's very well known. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So like Paul counted his, his, his previous life before Christ as nothing, We are to make a decision and consider and reckon suffering, reckon that we handle suffering with joy. Paul was saying there, and James is saying here, that they have done the math, so to speak. And they have come up with the appropriate answer to the problem. In other words, James is saying that we need the purpose in your, in your mind to have joy in suffering and let that be the dominating effect. It's in the imperative form, which means it's a command. It's something that you must willingly choose to do. And the verb here is in that form of a command, because why? Why would God, through James, need to command you to be joyful in suffering? 
Because it's the antithesis of our natural human response to trouble. Our natural human response to trouble is to not have joy. Our inclination is to give up in trouble. Our inclination is to morph into a state of self-pity and bitterness and gloom, much like Jonah did as he begged for God to take his life. But as Christians who have been saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, God wants us to count our trials as all joy. This is the perspective we must have with regard to suffering. The word joy has to do with rejoicing and gladness and bliss. And then notice the qualifier there, that small three-letter word. In the English it says all. And in the Greek language it's there to suggest intensity. Therefore we can glean from here that not only should we merely be content in our trials, right, like Job, that we should accept the bad things, the evil things, but James takes a step further. He says we are to suffer with intense joy. Intense joy. That's how God intends his slaves to suffer. He addresses his readers as brethren, which is a, in a spiritual sense describes fellow members of the same religion. And let me just state the obvious here. I usually don't state obvious things, but I feel like sometimes I need to. The word intended includes women. <laughs> you know, which, which, which some translations render it brothers and sisters, but the literal rendering is brethren. Brethren. So when we read in the Bible, brethren or brothers or mankind, it encapsulates women and children too. He says, brethren, my fellow believers in Jesus, when you encounter trials, consider it joy when you encounter various trials. Notice that it's not conditional. The text does not say if you encounter various trials. It says when, as if trials are expected. This little word, when, speaks to the absolute certainty and surprise of experiencing trials. James is saying that trials are inevitable, and they will come when you least suspect them. And by the way, they come in different shapes and sizes, don't they? Trials. What are trials? Well, the basic meaning of, of the Greek word here is testing, tempting, or proving. And it could be really be translated any other way. Any, any, any way like that. Depending on what? Context, right? Context is king. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Get that. So a little further reading here must be had so that we know the objective way to translate this word because trials and temptations carry vastly different implications, don't they? All we have to do to settle this theology is read down a little further. Verses 13 and 14. It goes like this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. Verse 14. 
Key verse. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by the devil. Your own lust. Your own lust. We had the discussion about this last time because a popular Christian movie going around right now places all the blame for the trouble in your life on the devil, but that's false. When you are tempted and when you sin, it's your fault. We are, we are carried away, the Scriptures, by our own lust, our own sinful flesh. We have sinful desires that are always present in us. That's where the temptation comes from, from within. So we can gather that trials come from God. Temptations originate from your own flesh. And that subtle nuance is very important as you develop your theology of suffering. When we face trial, it's from God and it's meant for your good. When we face temptation, it's from within and it will cause you to stumble if you give in. So trials in the context of verse 2 has to do with testing from God through trouble, controversy, difficulty, or hardship. And now at this point, since we're exegetical Bible readers, right? We must wonder and ask ourselves, what were the trials that James's readers were enduring? You know, because we can't, we can't just read this automatically put our own personal struggles on top of this text. Well, what was James talking about? Poverty is one of them. Poverty was certainly prominent among them. James's, James's letter is filled with reference to poverty and wealth. Chapter 1, 2, 4, and 5 addresses those things. And he makes clear that at least the majority of his readers are poor. Extreme poverty is quite, quite the trial, wouldn't you say? Something that we're, as Americans, we're blessed to not really have to deal with. I mean, I'm looking around, I know all of you. No, no, I can't, none, none of you are poor. None of you are in poverty. Including myself. Religious persecution, which is again is why his readers are addressed as the diaspora, those scattered among the nations. Again, one of the blessings of living in 21st century America is we're not persecuted yet, are we? And, and thirdly, the trials that James readers were experiencing, we can say that James deliberately cast the net wide. And here's where we can relate now. You know, James's readers suffer the same trials that we do in, in a sense of sickness and loneliness and bereavement and disappointment. But more than just that, these, these precious Jewish believers, they were very poor and they were being violently persecuted. That's the circumstances to which James is writing. But we also have to realize that just existing, just being alive in this fallen world, naturally brings suffering to a degree. And if you're a believer, a relatively high degree, if you're living out your faith. Jesus said in John 16.33, In the world you will have tribulation. Paul in Philippians 1.29 said, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, 
Your faith was granted to you. But also, guess what else was granted to you? That you suffer. Paul again in 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. So, qualifier there. If you don't desire to live a godly life, then you won't be persecuted. If you desire to live a godly life and you actually do it, you will be. Peter, in 1 Peter 4.12, said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Now, Peter's, P- Peter's audience, they, they were being violently persecuted by, by the emperor. Harshly persecuted. That's why he says, in chapter uh, 3, I believe, to submit to your rulers. Because they were being persecuted by the government. He says, do not be surprised about this, as though something strange was happening to you. This comes to, you, comes to you upon you for your testing, Peter says. And of course, there's Job, right? You can't talk about suffering without thinking about Job, right? Who was an upright, blameless man, yet he was singled out by divine initiative to suffer way beyond our human comprehension. Other giants of our faith suffered greatly. Joseph, who was thrown into a pit by his own brothers. I mean, whenever I start to feel sorry for myself, I just think, hey, at least I'm not sitting at the bottom of a pit right now. And, the, and, then, he was, he, and then he was incarcerated for doing what, what's right. Remember that? Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, and, and, and he resisted it. What did he get for it? Reward from God? No, imprisonment. And of course, it's Abraham who was commanded by God to literally kill his own son. Can you imagine if you're a parent being told by God to take your son out in the woods and stab him to death? That's, the scripture says that. Early church, first century believers suffered torture and death in the Roman Colosseum being thrown uh, into wild beasts. You know, something they don't tell you about in public school. You learn about the Colosseum in public school, but guess what? They don't tell you that the people who were being eaten alive were Christians. You heard of St. Ignatius? Quote-unquote, St. Ignatius? He was the first martyr, first Christian martyr in the Roman Colosseum to be shred alive by wild beasts. Around 107 A.D. As you, as you know, based on my teaching and preaching, the reformers suffered greatly. They were hunted, imprisoned, brutally and ruthlessly executed by the Roman Catholic Church. And most of all, we can't talk about suffering and not think about Jesus, right? The one whose suffering cannot be compared to anyone else's. Because he was smitten and stricken by God the Father. In fact, the Bible calls Jesus a man of sorrows. And one who was acquainted with grief. And contrary to the artistic license that some film producers, producers take advantage of, we never see Jesus laughing in the New Testament. 
Have you ever, have you ever observed that? The Bible never says that Jesus laughed. It doesn't mean that he never did. But how does Scripture portray Jesus? As a happy-go-lucky, fun-loving guy? No. We see Jesus weeping. We see Jesus sweating blood. We see Jesus rebuking, sometimes harshly rebuking. We see him commanding, follow me, drop your nets, follow me. And we see him suffering immensely. Have you ever thought about that? So I'm here to exhort you, based on the authority of God's word, not only to accept the trials... I mean, that's the first step, right? I mean, that, when, when we learn that we're supposed to accept the evil from God, that's a huge step, isn't it? But we, 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 we who are seeking to be mature Christians take it a step further. We need to be glad in our trials. We, we need to have intense joy. The only reason I can walk into the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, whatever it's called, with a smile, it's because of this text. When we experience intense joy in our suffering, we're being obedient Christians. But God in His grace, He's not like our, you know, if you're a parent and you've heard other parents say, you, you tell your kid to do something and they say, why? You just say, because I said so, just go do it. I, mean, I don't owe you an answer, right? Well, God doesn't owe us an answer. He could have just said, consider it joy. He could have left it at that. But God tells us why we should have intense joy in our trials. And that's the second question that we're going to look at. Verse 3. What is the purpose of suffering? What is the purpose of suffering? First we learned, how do we handle suffering? We handle it with intense joy. Now, what is the purpose of suffering? In verse 3, James reminds his readers that God brings difficulties into believers' lives for a purpose. And we'll see that the purpose can be accomplished only if we respond rightly. Now this purpose, look at verse 3 again. Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith The purpose of every trial you experience in life is to test you. If you fail the test by responding wrongly, it reveals something about the condition of your soul. And if you respond rightly, there's a reward, which will be explained next week. We get to verse 12. But for now, we really need to understand what James is saying in verse 3. He tells us why we suffer. He answers the question, Why can believers react to trials with joy? Because we know that God uses trials to test the genuineness of our faith. We know that God uses trials to test the genuineness of our faith. And praise the Lord for that. Because don't you want to know if your faith is genuine before it's too late? Now let's unpack this phrase here. He says, knowing... Now, this isn't just head knowledge. It is not the kind of knowledge that stems from just, just basic factual knowledge like 2 plus 2 is 4, right? We all know that, but 
whoopee-doo. It doesn't change us, right? It, it doesn't have any, you know, heart-grabbing um, effect on us. It's not like the historical knowledge that tells us George Washington was the first president of our country. Yeah, that's good to know, but it doesn't really have any practical um, help for us. It's just a fact. The knowledge here, it's beyond that. It, it extends to personal experience. Like, when you notice the leaves start to blossom. After living in Seattle, and it's been raining for months, right? You notice the leaves start to blossom, and you know some, something's coming, right? Summer is coming. And that brings so much joy to our hearts. Now, you know that summer is coming because you've experienced the shifting of seasons before, right? Whereas someone living in Antarctica, you know, they might know about summer because of what they've been told or because of what they've seen or read in books, but they don't know about the changing of the seasons because they've never experienced it. Like Olaf and Frozen. Now I've got your attention. Olaf and Frozen, he, 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 saw, he sung about how summer is so awesome. Obviously, the reason why it's funny is because he's a snowman. He's never experienced it. But he knows summer is awesome, and it's, it, it, it exists. But, we, but, but for us, we don't just have that type of knowledge with God, do we? We don't just have that type of knowledge, the general knowledge, because we've been tested. We have a full and intimate understanding of why we suffer. You know, there's a difference between someone saying, I know what it's like because of what I've heard and studied, versus I know what it's like because I've been there and I've come out the other end. So as Christians, we don't say, I am aware that trials are meant to test us. We say, I know from God's word and personal experience that the trials I have endured are for a specific purpose. The testing of your faith. Now look back in verse 3. The Greek word here for testing denotes a process of refining gold or silver so that its impurities can be melted away. So think of yourself as a piece of gold being thrown into the fiery furnace so that the impurities can be eradicated. That's what trials do. Our difficulties are intended by God to refine our faith and to melt away anything counterfeit or superficial in our spiritual lives. You know, to a degree, we're all very familiar with being tested, right? Because we've all endured some, some, uh, some level of, of, of academics. Part of the education process is testing, right? I mean, there, there, there's, there's no school that, that I've heard of that omits all testing. At least in the American system. It, there's, there's testing to be had. And for a good reason. To discern whether or not the student is equipped and capable to move on and do the work that he wants to do. 
And the higher you go, the more weight the tests hold, right? For instance, you won't become a licensed physician if you fail the standard medical licensing exam. It's good, right? I mean, that, when I go in the doctor's office, that, that gives me a little bit of confidence that, you know, I'm getting taken care of. You, you, you won't be allowed to practice law without passing the state's bar exam, for a good reason. And depending on your denomination, there are pretty high standards for pastors, right? And, and rightfully so. I mean, how, why would we allow uh, a doctor without the, the right credentials to operate on your heart, your physical hearts, and allow someone else with no training and no education and no certification to operate on your soul. So in our day, one of the most common standards to even be considered as a, for a pastoral candidate is a seminary degree, which, as you can imagine, there are numerous exams that a seminary student must pass to graduate. One of the most nerve-wracking series of tests for the typical seminary student is having to preach in front of your peers and a seasoned professor, who was also a seasoned preacher. And when I was a student, there was at least one brother who decided, after that experience, the pastoral ministry wasn't for him. There was also a man that I know who did more than simply redirect his journey after seminary. On the day that this man was scheduled to preach, he came to the class wearing a tie and jacket, which is the quote-unquote uniform. He came with his exegetical paper ready to hand in, which was a requirement. That's the part you don't see at sermon prep. You know, you guys, you guys seen that picture on social media that has like the iceberg and like this massive part of the iceberg underwater? But then the very tip of it's only above water. That's what you can see. Anyways, take that for what it's worth. He came into the classroom with his full sermon manuscript, which is another requirement. You can't just get into the pulpit with nothing. You have to have demonstrate you've done the work. So he came with those requirements, and he stepped into the pulpit in the small classroom. And after the signal to begin, he started to preach. About halfway through his introduction, he stopped, closed his Bible, and he walked out. What he did after that was he went directly to the admissions office, disenrolled from seminary, and moved back to where he came from. Why? Because he could not handle the pressure of preaching. The brother failed that test. Most would say that his calling to ministry was not genuine. Because he could not handle the pressure. So in a similar way, our calling to salvation in Christ is tested. We are tested to see if we can handle the weight of our trials. And as, you, and as you know, if you've been a Christian for more than a day, I learned that thing in the army, you've been a Christian more than a day, you know that many do not pass. Many crumble and fall. Many walk away from Christ in this church. 
because many fail the test. And then look, I know it's easier said than done. God knows and my family knows that I can respond wrongly like the rest of them. So don't look to me as the prime example. I'm merely preaching the word of God. But we have to remind ourselves, we have to remind each other very often that we need to work to respond to our trials with intense joy. Because if we don't respond with our trials with intense joy or learn to or yearn to and attempt to, then it tells us that we are not right with God. So almost examine ourselves, as the scripture says, to see whether or not we are in the faith. And one of the chief ways that we can do this is to do an honest assessment of the way we respond to suffering. So let me ask you, how do you respond to suffering? And if you haven't respond, responded to intense joy for one reason or another, perhaps there's some repenting to be done. We've been exhorted on how to handle suffering. We've been told the purpose of suffering. Now let's see the next question James answers for us. Number three, what are the results of suffering? What are the results of suffering? And at the end of verse three and into verse four, there are three good results of suffering if we pass the test. James goes on to say, the testing of your faith produces endurance. In other words, the first result of suffering is perseverance. Endurance, it means to persevere, to remain under. And sometimes it's rendered as patience. Which is to say, if we pass God's testing, we continually become more and more and more able to persevere in our spiritual life. With every trial, we become more and more able to persevere and remain under the hard circumstances rather than crumble beneath them. To put it another way, the result of the testing we pass makes us stronger. That's as simply as I could put it. Passing the test of trial makes you stronger. It's, it's a, it's, it's, it makes us stronger. Perseverance, on the other hand, should be common for us. But it's, it's, not, it's not a reality for the unredeemed. In fact, one commentator points out that even a new believer could not have endured the many trials Paul faced. If you came to Christ later in life, can you, can you imagine going through what Paul went through? I, I couldn't have endured it. Being shipwrecked, beaten, left for dead, being cast out by the only people that I knew. One of the most intense trials that I experienced was an unbeliever. And I can only thank God for restraining my flesh at the time. Briefly, I'll, I'll just explain. After being in Iraq for nearly 12 months, this is around August 2006, my unit was preparing to go home. All of our equipment was inspected, packed, 
and sealed for customs, including all our weapons. And all we had to do was literally walk on the plane. After 12 months of war, now the day before, we were slotted to board the C-130 to take us to Kuwait, which is, if you're not sure, that's the staging area. Everybody going into Iraq. The company commander called a mandatory formation. And no one expected to hear the news we heard. We all stood in a horseshoe formation, kind of like a U. He stood on an elevated platform. You know, we expected to hear some kind of safety briefing because the military loves safety briefings. But with a sober expression on his face, our commander informed us that we received orders to stay in Iraq for 120 more days. Not only that, but we would, we would be serving the duration of our extension in Baghdad, which at the time was an extremely dangerous place to be. Now, as a 21-year-old unbeliever, how do you think I responded? It's like I remember my buddies and said, that's all right, man. We can, we're we're going to do this and we're going to come out. We're going to come through this strong. We're going to be home in no time. You think that's what I said? I walked to an isolated place. I sat down and I wept like a baby. I was crushed. Because I did not have the capacity to accept this trial, let alone do it with joy. But now, as a believer in the Lord, for nine years, though I know it wouldn't be easy, I have full confidence that I could persevere if I were in that position again. Why? Because I've been through several other trials since then, and by God's grace, here I stand. God has tested me. And with his help, I persevered. But you see, you can't do that without knowing Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And you can't do that without obeying the Scripture. The second result of testing, of our trials, is maturity. Verse 4. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect. Now, James does not mean perfect in the sense that we become sinless. He means that our perseverance leads to spiritual maturity. Perfect is from teleos, which pertains to that which is fully developed. And it's used in other places to speak of a child becoming fully developed into adulthood. 1 Corinthians 14.20 Brethren, Paul writes, Do not be children in your thinking, yet be evil, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Okay, so he compares our spiritual development with 
the physical development of a child into adulthood. The adult doesn't become perfect like sinless. He just becomes fully developed. In a similar way, as we grow, as we are tested, as we persevere, we become more fully developed. So it could be translated as mature. And that's the way it's to be taken in James 1 verse 4. In fact, the NIV and Holman translate it as such. To reflect the idea of maturity, not sinless perfection. Okay, so the testing of our faith not only makes us stronger, it also makes us wiser. Thirdly, the third result of testing or trials is completeness. Back in verse 4, completeness. James goes on to say, and complete, lacking in nothing. Meaning as you go through testing, there are no unfulfilled gaps in your life. And what I mean by that is this. You know, every person works hard to make a buck, right? Every person works hard to put bread on their table unless living on the streets, right? Every person tries hard to raise a family and deals with the challenges that go with that. We all deal, in other words, with the physical pain in life. And let's face it, on the surface it appears sometimes that unbelievers just do life better, doesn't it? And if we're honest for ourself, with ourselves, we see some unbelieving families that, that seem to have it more together. They seem to, uh, from a worldly perspective, go untested. In other words, they live to be old. Their family is healthy. They seem wealthy and successful. They have the house, the RV. They have all those things that a lot of believers never have. They act like they don't have a care in the world. But you want to know the truth? They have plenty of cares. But another truth is this. They're not complete. They're not complete. They're missing something. They're missing true hope. They're missing a relationship with the living God. But you, if you're in Christ and have been tested, have endured, are being made complete. Jeremiah had the same questions. He was perplexed as he observed how the unbelieving world seemingly goes to life untested. The the weeping prophet Jeremiah in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? But as I said, they're incomplete. For reasons unknown to us, God has willed that true believers be tested so that your professed faith can be revealed for what it really is. And if it's genuine, you will have perseverance, you will be matured, you will grow up, and you will be made complete. Another interesting thing about this idea of completeness, 
one of the ways that the military tries to discern your mental, quote-unquote, health, they can examine you physically, right? That's, they go through that. But Over 11, 12 years of war now, what is it? Almost 14 years of war. They're starting to think, hmm, everybody's getting divorced. People are experiencing PTSD. People are shooting themselves. People are getting enslaved to drugs and alcohol. Uh, and what are we going to do about this? How are we going to prevent this? So they come up with this tool, this written tool, to try to discern how they're going to prevent these things. And guess what? One of the questions on that exam was rate on a scale of how much you believe that you have a purpose in your life. That has nothing to do with quote-unquote mental stability. It has nothing to do with your physical fitness. It has to do with your outlook on life. And guess what? Only the Scripture, only God can speak into that area of your life. So my point is this. Even the military the, who, 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 are, who are restricted to secular governing principles, even they realize that, wait a minute, there's more to the comprehensive health of a soldier than his just physical and quote-unquote mental stability. There's also the spiritual. Mind, body, soul. We get that, right? You cannot be a complete person without all three of those things in order. And as a chaplain, I get to stand in front of people who have, who have never understood the gospel, and I get to say that. You're all religious people. And they go, oh! You're religious because you live for something. You either live for yourself, you live for your wife, your kids, or for your bank account. That's your religion. And if you live for those things, you are not going to be a comprehensively healthy soldier. So this morning, let me wrap up here. Or I could keep going. You have nothing better to do. What we've learned this morning is we've, we've started this lesson on suffering. Now you have an answer to the questions, how do you handle suffering? You handle suffering with intense joy. What is the purpose of suffering? The purpose of suffering is to test the genuineness of your faith. And what are the results of suffering? Perseverance, maturity, and completeness. Now next week we'll unpack verses 5 to 12 and we'll address three more questions about suffering in the life of a believer. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much that you have revealed this truth. We can know how to handle suffering. We can know the purpose of it. We can know the purpose of every seemingly bad and evil thing that happens to us. And thank you that you have given us these tests to discern whether or not we are phony or true. Thank you that you've given us perfect results of this suffering. 
Thank you that you've, endure, you've helped us to endure these things, Lord. I pray for those who may be suffering at this time and are still struggling with how to handle it. I pray that this text will speak to them. It will encourage them and instruct them and retrain their mind. Help them to look to you and to you alone, Lord, in the midst of this suffering. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.